I'm Michelle Harvin, and welcome to Business 2020, Foresight Through Hindsight, a podcast of the Aspen Institute's Business and Society Program. In this podcast series, we take a fresh look at major events in business and society over the past two decades, from the WTO protests to 9-11, from Enron to Occupy Wall Street. These events may have left the front page, but they offer important lessons for business leaders in the decades ahead. I want to pick up where we ended our last episode, with a mention of how technology will play a big role in shaping the relationship between business and society in the years ahead. As things stand today, however, some are left wondering if tech has done more to divide us than bring us together. Public perception of the tech sector has darkened in recent years. It's a phenomenon dubbed the tech clash. We're living in an era now where people blame Silicon Valley for an awful lot of social ills. And frankly, I agree with all of that. But 20 years ago, people were much more utopian. That's Jerry Davis, professor at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business and the author of the book, The Vanishing American Corporation. Jerry says we used to think the internet would topple hierarchies and create opportunities for all. Instead, we may be winding up with a handful of companies that dominate the market for tech. And they aren't creating a lot of jobs either. For Apple to be a trillion dollar company, they still employ fewer people than Eastman Kodak did 20 years ago. So how did the reality of tech wind up straying so far from people's dreams? In this episode, we're going to look for an answer by revisiting an event from nearly two decades ago, the bursting of the tech bubble in March of 2000. That bubble era is often thought of as a time of wild parties and ridiculous business models. And it was. But as we'll hear in this episode, a lot of dot-com companies were also ahead of their time, and their ideals inspired lots of Americans to embrace technology in a new way. So it's worth taking a new look at the boom and bust of the dot-com bubble, because it explains a lot about the tech world today and where it could go in the future. So let's first go back and look at what made the dot-com bubble possible at all, mainly baby boomers with 401ks and the dawn of the World Wide Web. Here's Brian McCullough, host of the Internet History Podcast. There was a ton of money that had to go somewhere. It was all going to the stock market. There's only a limited number of stocks. Serendipitously, this entire industry suddenly comes out of nowhere in the mid to late 90s. And so all these forces come together to create the sort of mania because the money has to have somewhere to go. There's this exciting new avenue for it to go in. One person who felt the excitement about the internet before any big money was involved was a young New Yorker named Jamie Levy. I was working at IBM as an interface designer when the first web browser came out and it was in a lab there and somebody showed it to me. Literally just came out, uh, this was around 93, and I just went to my manager and quit my job. I saw the future. Today, Jamie is a user experience advisor and university professor based in Los Angeles. But in the 90s, she was at the center of a New York startup scene. I had always, you know, read so much about Andy Warhol's salons and 
knew that I wanted to do something like a salon in the East Village where I could gather together people from different disciplines. So I set up my web browser and I had these parties um, where I wanted to have all these people come and see the internet. They would That was the, where they saw it first. And then the people would show up in droves and bring people. Those people started getting online themselves, as did millions more. Jamie says it was an exciting time full of hope. I was bringing together the entire community that I went there to be surrounded by into my loft and it being not just about music, not just about film, not just about art, but also integrating you know, technology in there and having people really excited about it. I mean, that was really just like, to me, the best time in New York before it got commodified. A lot of companies got started in those years. And a few years later, some of those companies went public with IPOs. And then came a short but wild chapter. Here's Brian McCullough. The interesting thing is the actual bubble period is a really compressed period because the tech IPOs are sort of thin in 96, 97. In 1998, a whole bunch of dot-com IPOs come to market. And then it's really in the 18 months period between the summer of 1998 and then the end of 1999 into 2000 that you get just hundreds. You were getting tech IPOs almost every single day and uh, until the, the music stopped and uh, the bubble burst. But it's that last 18-month period that we kind of remember in popular memory of companies going public and all of a sudden having you know $30 billion valuations. And why did the music stop? Brian says it wasn't always because the business ideas were bad. Quite the opposite. In fact, Brian says we need to thank the dot-com era for ideas that its successor, Web 2.0, often gets the credit for. AOL was always thought of pejoratively as the training wheels for the internet. But not only did AOL have so many features, they basically had a social graph already before Facebook built its social graph. That was your instant messenger, your, your buddy list on your friends. But not only those sorts of features that then entire companies and industries would be built off of in the Web 2.0 and social era, but AOL deserves a lot of credit for training all of us on very basic concepts of, you know, living, having an, an avatar, having a digital identity that's separate than your in real life identity. And it wasn't just big names like AOL. Dot-com era startups had ideas that were years ahead of their time. I mean, one of the biggest busts of the dot-com era was uh, a company called Webvan, which, you know, investors poured hundreds of millions of dollars into and then went bankrupt uh, within 18 months. That was basically grocery delivery. So if the dot-com era was brimming with such great ideas, why did it all end in a multi-trillion dollar bust in March of 2000? The problem was just that... It was kind of too soon, because even as late as the year 2000, it's only around that time that computer penetration in the U.S. and households passes 50%. So we live in a world today where everybody has computers in their pocket, but as late as the year 2000, 
not everybody is using computers every single day. So there was a lot of money and a lot of companies trying to create technologies and things for a population that hadn't, you know, completely been digitalized yet, that had not completely gotten on the internet and the technology bandwagon yet. And then there were literal structural forces like in the entire dot-com era takes place before Wi-Fi, before broadband. Then, as often happens after a crash, a lot of people overcorrected. Because everyone thought that the internet was over and the internet was a fad, you had all of the legacy players like the big media companies, they shutter all of their internet divisions. Because, you know, there was, there was a time period when people thought that maybe Amazon would go bankrupt. It was a $5 stock. But that retreat of big players, says Brian, had the benefit of giving newcomers a lot of space and opportunity. Essentially, when all of the companies that we think of today, the Googles, the Facebooks, start to bubble up under the surface, there is no sort of oligopoly at the top that can come in and take them out. That didn't exist for about a decade. And so the real creativity that was unleashed was the fact that all of these ideas and all of these companies were allowed to mature to their natural states without being acquired, without facing really serious competition. This second era of companies often gets called Web 2.0, to contrast it with the bubble era, 1.0. Web 2.0 was much bigger and much broader. But Brian says the crash had caused so many people to think the internet was a blip that regulators weren't paying much attention either. There's about a decade where people in power, people in government, people in finance have to realize that they were wrong and that the internet never really went away and it really was the next big thing. And so um, the, the lack of regulation, the lack of even anti-competitive thinking at the time, all of these companies were allowed to develop and to grow so monstrously big without anybody regulating them or worrying about any sorts of things like concentration of power and that sort of thing. Meanwhile, in the Web 2.0 era, most of the new web startups never went public at all. According to Jerry Davis, they didn't need to, in part because of the way that the Web 1.0 era had started to change the nature of employment. Over the 1990s, uh, with the growth of the World Wide Web, it became a lot more feasible to find contractors and to outsource things that the companies did. If you can rent all of the parts that you need to build an enterprise, if you can find somebody else to do the payroll, do the marketing and distribution, handle your accounting, do the manufacturing, then you don't really need to build these parts yourself and you don't need to ask investors for as much money. And at some level, this applies to employees as well. If I can hire contractors rather than employees, then I don't have to worry about their health insurance or their social security, and I can fire them at a moment's notice. So for better or worse, we're in this sort of flexible economy where it's possible to rent the parts of an organization rather than buying them. And if you can rent, then you don't need to go public. So while the Web 2.0 era was opening up all sorts of job opportunities for a share of the public, it was closing off a lot of opportunities for everyone else and making employment a lot more precarious. Jerry says this was a big loss for Americans who were used to the security of traditional corporations. So one of the things that corporations did was provide some discipline and regularity in wages. If you kept working there, you'd get a raise and you'd probably move up in the world. And so people could see their wages increase over time because they had a career ladder that made sense. If you're moving from one dead-end job to another, 
you're not going to see your wages increase. Um, if you're moving from Uber driver to Lyft driver, you're not going to then move on to be an Uber programmer using SQL and Python or, or whatever. Uh, there just isn't a career ladder for jobs that look like that. Jerry stresses that when we think of the handful of these new big companies that emerged in the past 20 years, their bigness is in wealth, not in job creation. If you look at a company like Facebook, they might have a $600 billion market capitalization, but they only have 25,000 employees. You look at Google, they've got about 90,000 employees, roughly what Blockbuster had 10 years ago. So what replaced Web 1.0 was more durable, but it wasn't always more likable. Web 2.0 is now dominated by a few giants, relatively unregulated and harsh in their effects on the job market. And if that wasn't enough to cause a tech lash, then the lengths that tech has been willing to go in search of financial dominance was enough to cause it. There was an article in the New York Times describing how there's an entire industry of people that are using uh, location tracking on your phones to make horrifying inferences about you and sell you products that you didn't want. <laughs> and so, and it's like much bigger than anybody realizes that if you download a particular weather app that you are agreeing to be tracked everywhere you go, and that data might be sold to some third party that then uses it to see, you know, that you're visiting CD bars or who knows what else you might be spending your time on. Today, Jamie Levy says the tech world has alienated more and more of its users, and the creativity it used to embody is also scarce. I teach course after course at USC or, you know, or do these workshops and every idea is like Uber for this or, you know, Tinder for that. You know, it's just this kind of like slight change of a value proposition of a concept. Brian McCullough wonders if one reason for this might be that the winners have grown too big. Because tech does rule everything right now, because you have these huge companies at the top, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Apples, I do wonder if one of the reasons why tech feels like it's sort of in a lull right now is because you have this oligopoly at the top, this powerful class that it's not that they're stifling innovation, it's that as soon as any innovation happens, they gobble it up and add it to their existing platforms. But Brian says a deeper reason for today's tech lull is that the business approach that characterized Web 2.0 is out of gas. Because everything was going online and it was a wild west, uh, all you had to do was be the first one to plant your flag in any market, in any technology, and basically you could own it if you, if you were smart enough and made the right moves. Uh, it was all about scale, you know, that's the buzzword that we hear all the time, chasing scale, going for scale. That's great, and it was probably the greatest business opportunity of the last hundred years. But it's not very sophisticated. So it's great that 10 years ago, if you were a team of, you know, a dozen people, you could code up a better chat app and in 18 months you could have a billion users. But it was low-hanging fruit. And so one of the problems with technology right now is that the low-hanging fruit has all been picked. And all anyone knows is this one trick of going for scale. So hard as it is to imagine now, the tech giants of today might be just one disruption away from the same sort of collapse that befell the stars of the bubble era. Here's Jerry Davis. It's really hard to predict in the moment who's going to be the survivors. I mean, AOL and Yahoo looked impregnable in 2000, and now they're 
kind of, if, if you ask 20-year-olds, they've never heard of either one of them. If nothing else, then a look back at the dot-com boom and bust offers business leaders a cautionary tale about pride. But it also offers an insight that's less obvious. Today, we can see that many of the tech titans of the Web 2.0 era built their companies with a mind to avoiding the mistakes of the dot-com boom and bust. They did it by chasing scale, operating without many regulations, and often losing much of the idealism and public support that the tech companies used to enjoy. The accounts you've heard from our guests suggest executives should stop thinking of the bygone dot-com era in terms of what it got wrong and start remembering it in terms of what it got right. In other words, early web entrepreneurs got it wrong when they bet that leaps in technology and society could somehow rescue companies that were money losers. But they got it right in their belief that idealism can be the biggest spur to innovation. Here's Brian McCullough. When I'm being hopeful, I'm seeing that the next 10, 20 years are going to be us learning to deal with and live with and, and thrive with technology in more mature ways. And so the hope would be is that the companies will be forced to, but hopefully proactively evolve along with us and create products and services and technologies that are also more mature, more sophisticated, and, and hopefully um, more humane and more positive. It's foresight through hindsight. Business breakthroughs of the decades ahead may depend on recovering the idealism of the early web. Brian's account echoes a number of legal scholars like Tim Wu, who argue that idealism will have a better chance of being revived if the might of big tech is tamed and made to benefit everyone more equitably. Here's Jerry Davis with the final word. If we want to bring more democracy to our economy, I think we need to think beyond corporations. We need to think beyond just regulating public corporations as a standard way we do things. I think we need to keep our eyes on the ball. The ball in this case being opportunity, economic security, and more democracy. The history of the tech lash reflects how business choices can lead to a political earthquake. But political events can also upend business as usual. Our next episode looks at two geopolitical shocks in late 2001 that changed both business and society. Started to experience a shadow that came over the window. The windows started to buckle in front of us. I think hopes were extremely high in 2001. There was a notion that if you engage China, you would change China. Subscribe to Business 2020 on iTunes so you won't miss it. New episodes go live every Tuesday. And if you like our show, please leave a review so others can discover it. Follow the Business and Society program on Twitter at AspenBizSociety for more information on the issues discussed in this episode. Business 2020 is hosted and produced by me, Michelle Harvin, and written by senior producer Keith Schumann, with input from Miguel Pedro, Felicia Davis, and T.A. Frank. Recorded by Ben Eiler and edited by Ben Berliner, Clifton King, and Jesse Krinsky. Special thanks to our guests this episode, Jerry Davis, Jamie Levy, and Brian McCullough. You can find detailed information on the music and sound credits through the site page for this episode on the BSP website. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.